Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Joe Lonsdale. Joe Lonsdale is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and investor. He is a co-founder of Palantir, managing partner at the U.S.-based venture capital firm 8VC, and the host of the American Optimist podcast. We will make a rare exception and plug another podcast here on That's Madison's right. Notes. Uh, Joe Lonsdale, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thanks for having me. Uh, Joe, I, I could have added that you're the last of a dying breed, and, and I not as a philanthropist, entrepreneur, or investor. We, ha- we have those, but as an optimist. So uh, I, have, I have to start here. We have a war in Europe, record high inflation, a divided country. What's Joe Lonsdale so optimistic about? Well, it can only get better, right? <laughs> actually, there's a lot of ways things can get a lot worse. I mean, that's actually one of the things we should all keep in mind is how awesome our lives are and our civilization is compared to, you know, the vast, vast majority of times in human history. I think we still have a very relatively free, prosperous country. We see what's going on in China and what happens when you don't have checks on power and don't have rights is you have, you know, this lockdown in Shanghai where they're taking away people's kids who get COVID and they're killing their pets. And I mean, there's just like all these horrible things that happen when you don't have a system that believes in principles, believes in liberty, believes in checks on power. And, and, you know, the innovation going on in the world today is, is amazing. Like we're discovering the secrets of life and unlocking how biology works and all sorts of, you know, tens of billions of dollars going into these really, really clever new ways to, to extend life and to cure diseases. It looks like with all these cell therapies and, you know, we're involved in a lot of the advanced manufacturing of a lot of these things, there's going to be all sorts of new diseases cured in the next decade. You know, I think, you know, I was just the opening party for Tesla's new factory, you know, in Austin this last week with, Elon and Omid and those guys, it's extraordinary what they're accomplishing. It's things the size of three Pentagons. It was built in a year. But if you actually have competent people uh, working in free areas, you can just achieve things that were totally impossible in the past. You know, I'm actually, I'm very bullish. I know it sounds silly to some people, but I'd say the boring company is potentially one of the most exciting things going on right now. You basically are going to get rid of traffic in our major cities that are competent enough to, to use it because it's very cheap to dig tunnels and get rid of traffic now. It's like a huge advance. I mean, there's just like any problem that you see, you know, right now, there's good solutions that involve good policy and good technology. And so if we can just get people to stop being like woke and stupid and just focus on like common sense, I think there's all, you know, there's just good answers to everything. Sure. So we have good answers to everything, lots to be thankful for and optimistic about, but what worries you most about America? What keeps you up at night? What worries me most is a lack of courage right now hmm. in our generation. And the lack of courage to stand up and say, no, that's stupid. That's broken. This is the right answer. I'm going to fight for the right answer. Like every, everyone, you know, it's actually everyone who's smart around me is making so much money that they're like, Joe, if I just stay quiet, I'm going to make another tons of money this next year. And my life's pretty good. So why would I speak up and push against any of this stuff? And, and I appreciate that you're doing it, but it's just, you know, I'm building right now. And the thing I'm building will just be distracted. People will attack me. So it's like this culture of fear to actually speak up for your values, speak up for principles, speak up for what works in society. And you see a few of the very successful people more recently, Mark Andreessen, 
Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, and others who are starting willing to speak and willing to be courageous. But it's, it's just so rare. There's so many, you know, young men used to be raised to look to like Alexander the Great and Caesar and all these historical figures. Uh, and, and, uh, and I'm not saying George Washington and, and you know, and, and, our, and our, our heroes of our, of, our, of our world. I'm not saying these were perfect men. Like we shouldn't idolize people for not being flawed humans. All humans are flawed. Mm-hmm. But, but the idea of just like the extraordinary accomplishments you can, you can make if you're courageous and how important courage is for our society. Like we don't have that right now. And that's, we need to reinvigorate that if we're, if we're going to actually win and, and push the right ideas. So what do you say to your colleagues or your friends when they say, Joe, I have so much respect for what you're doing. It's all great stuff. I admire you for your courage, but I'm making good money. I have a family to raise. I just can't get involved in this stuff. What do you say to them? Well, I say if everyone makes that choice, we're going to lose our nation. So I hope you'll go back and think about the type of person you want to be and the ways you can contribute. You don't have to run around public right away and scream your strongest opinion. This most controversial thing that you think about BLM, like that's probably not what you need to do right away to contribute, you know, but, but you can say, what are the institutions that I want to see uh, created, you know, starting a new university in Austin. What are the ways I'm going to support the new, new ways in the press that are less dysfunctional? What are the ways I'm going to stop supporting uh, groups that are being crazy woke or in, in ways that are against my values and in ways that, that violate the common sense and the principles that, that make our civilization work. You know, what we, there's lots of small choices we all make each day. And in what ways are you going to fight for the good guys and fight for your principles? It's something we have to think about. Absolutely. You mentioned the University of Austin there. I want to turn there. And first, I want to look at the problem that the University of Austin is seeking to fix. And I'm quoting you here. In the 20th century, American universities attracted exceptional thinkers in every field and produced an unprecedented wealth of knowledge. Our universities drove scientific progress, pursued truth, and cultivated an intellectually courageous and competent elite. They helped make the United States the most innovative, prosperous, and powerful nation in history. But today, our universities are failing to live up to that legacy. What happened? You know, it's a, it's a combination of things. There's, like anything else, at a very high level, the, one of the number one things that happened, you know, is the way innovation uh, happens in society has, has changed the incentives for people. So, so there's, there's really a couple things. One, with our school systems in K-12, which is related, by the way, but it's a system-level thing. I want people thinking about how systems work. Like it used to be a really bright woman would oftentimes go be a teacher, and that was really good for our kids. And now, uh, for, positively, there's really better opportunities. There's, you know, there's really, my grandma's turning 102 this year. Thankfully, she's still around. Wow. And, uh, and she was, you know, she was very successful early in business, supporting someone in business, but then really couldn't be her own business work woman. And she works as a teacher for 30 years. And, and there's no way she would have gone back to be a teacher these days. She would have been a very successful businesswoman. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, and, and so, so, so you stop and think about it, like, like, so there's, there's ways in which like positive things also have other impacts. And so one of the other positive things that happened is that innovation has gotten much cheaper uh, and much more distributed to perform the last 70 years. In 1940s and 50s, if you want to be innovative, uh, the way it works in the mid 20th century is very expensive. You had to have like millions or tens of millions spent on all these different tools and structures and, and you need big institutions. And so innovation can really only happen in a place like Bell Labs or the US government, or maybe or a few other kind of fortune 100 companies is where they're really renovating for the most part. And there's exceptions, but that was kind of the rule overall. Sure. And, and now innovation is very, very cheap. And, and, and it's actually allowed us to create a lot more wealth, a lot more prosperity. It also allows 
people to have much greater intellectual leverage. You don't have to go to a big company and give them all the upside. You can create things yourself. And you've seen tens of thousands of examples of this. And so if you're a very, very bright person who's intellectually dynamic, it used to be like being a professor. It wasn't paid as well as a business person, but you were still kind of part of in the same league. But now, but now if you're now if you're like a really bright person, you can like make a hundred times as much mm-hmm. money not being a professor. And it's not just the money, it's like you can express yourself intellectually in much richer and more complex and interesting ways, you know, in, in the private sector, in the innovative parts of the private sector, in ways that just, just didn't even come close to existing for most people, you know, 120 years ago. I mean, there's obviously always exceptions to these rules, but they're just you just as a really smart person. And I've seen this. I've seen this with some of my brightest friends who we won the national, you know, chess and math competitions as kids. And these were like genius young guys, and and uh, and, and a woman in one case. And uh, and you know, so a lot of them went to get PhDs at the very top schools, and a lot of them dropped out of the PhDs and were much more intellectually fulfilled in the companies we were building and solving the problems we we're building at at places like Palantir, at places like some of these new bio companies. You know, where, where they actually there's a lot of the research that's actually driving things forward is being done with the tools and systems of the super bright people working in company structures, you know, you know, so, 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 so I think given, given how the systems changed, uh, you don't have the best and brightest universally universities anymore. You have maybe a much smaller amount of the best and brightest universities. You have a lot of the truly like tier one, very top minds, like whether it's Elon Musk or, or Peter Thiel or others like that, like completely outside of the university systems and, and, you know, and, and then and then on top of that, so you have that force kind of ripping smartest people away. And then you have these kind of weird orthodoxies and, and weird like ideologies like seeping their way into the universities in the mid 20th century as well, spreading really in the 60s and 70s. And so I think I think this whole postmodernist like Foucault thing is very it's very aligned with neo-Marxism, right? It's very much it's very much aligned with like this view of history that is kind of this top-down totalitarian, like cynical negative view like this, this is by the way nino is why it's so important that we're optimistic mm. is that is that the the other side of optimism is this like negative view where everything in history and everything in the future is all a zero-sum power struggle like there's a, there's all these people in universities who think that the constitution and the values behind america are all fake and they're all about like rich white men trying to impose themselves on everyone else and run everything which, which is very funny for me like my mom's side is jewish and my dad's side is mostly Irish with a bit of English. So it's like, we were, we were kind of the minorities hundred years ago, but who cares now I'm a rich white man, apparently. <laughs> and, and like, so therefore all of American history that I'm part of is, you know, it's about attacking others. And it, but, but, but it's really sinister, right? Because, because, you know, America after the enlightenment came up with the structure of society that was positive some where everyone could win together. We could have a pluralistic society where the greatest founders, Benjamin Franklin and others actually really had huge problems with slavery as well. It wasn't that they were completely hypocritical. They thought UK had imposed slavery as a system on, on the South. And right. And so those people really did have like good progressive values that kind of were about lifting everybody up. And, and it's a system that worked. It, it's like, it worked. It, 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 it's one of the greatest things in human history. What did it achieve versus everything else? And all these people copied it. And it was like, everyone kind of understood this. And now these people in academia are trying to rewrite history and trying to say that everything about society is that a nasty zero-sum power struggle and, and anything we're doing is not actually about winning together. It's about imposing our values. And so that, and that ideology is spread and has conquered these universities and they've hired people who agree with them. Um, you know, the way it works in these universities now is departments get to decide who else gets to be hired in their department. And so they've only kind of hired people over time who agree with them. And at first it was not a big deal, but now you have these departments that are 18 to one, like 
you know, you know, left to right, and there's more super ultra neo Marxists than there are people who are even moderate conservatives. Yeah. And and it's, it's just they've they've become corrupted and broken. It's, and and that broken has been accelerated by the fact that smart people are leaving. But it's also just a bad ideology. Yeah. And so the University of Austin bursts onto the scene, and you're a founding trustee of this university that is dedicated to the fearless pursuit of truth. What makes the place unique? Well, I mean, first of all, having a top university that's not run by neo-Marxists these days and that's willing to stand up to them, <laughs> tell them that they're idiots, and you know, it's pretty good. I, I think I think having really smart people who are allowed to debate what they believe, like having people on both the left and the right, uh, there's not making it so they're not afraid they're going to get canceled. Making it so that if students come and protest someone for saying something they don't like, students are free to protest. But as soon as they do anything violent or shut down anybody, they're out, you know, no violence, no shutting things down. And, and the administration is never going to punish someone who's getting protested by students. Whereas nowadays, like these people are truly afraid for their for their safety and for their jobs if they speak out about, about these topics. It's crazy. Like, you know, we had we had over 4000 professors apply in the first two weeks we announced at the University wow. of Austin because wow. they're they're seeking asylum right i mean they're literally seeking asylum not like a fake asylum we do nowadays with, with the you know the border but a real asylum <laughs> they're trying to actually like like not be be destroyed for what they what they believe and it's uh you know there's there's a lot of different things you want to do differently you want to make it more interdisciplinary not let the departments be captured you don't want long term tenure because that's just that's ended up becoming a corrupt force unfortunately in our society i think like the 300 year ago version of it seemed really cool to me but it's clearly doesn't work um mm -hmm. and then you want you want to have you want to have basically the innovation ecosystem and the leaders of the innovation world, the true tier one minds, very closely involved in it. Because in order to be a tier one place in our society, you need those people and need to be shaping it because those people are oftentimes ahead of even the best professors. So to have that mixed into the culture, like the goal is the goal is not just to provide jobs for middle-aged, you know, university professors. The goal is actually have the best and brightest there. And then we're going to actively recruit top students. Hmm. You know, it's like I mean. You know, there's real after recruiting students. We're gonna be, you know, obviously not based on not race, not based on race and gender. I think the only after recruiting going on these days is is people who are basically, you know, reverse racists, basically trying to recruit people. We're actually gonna recruit the very, very top best minds that 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 could be any any race or gender, but we're not gonna discriminate against white males, you know. So, so you know, or, or Asia or Asian males for that matter, by the way, which are the ones we're most discriminated against these days. Yeah. Quoting you here, we are starting to notice a serious deficit in Silicon Valley, a shortage of great leaders, end quote. So two questions for you. One, what does it mean to be a great leader? And two, why can't Silicon Valley find them? Well, I think great leaders require a lot of things, but intellectual courage, which we spoke about, is clearly one of them. Hmm. You, don't, you don't have a lot of that. Um, a great leader is a servant, is someone who's really working towards you know, towards the goals of the organization and of society. And so it's, it's someone who's a steward, who's like really focused on others. I think a lot of the young talent in our society is very much at a point now where it's all about them and it's all about how they're going to advance. It's actually, it's very strange actually. It used to be a long time, even I'm not that old, but 20 years ago when I was first kind of doing things in the workforce, there's at least a lot more sense of like people understanding they're joining something to be part of it and, and make it win. And that was like clearly how you built things. And this is called stewardship. You know, it's like the sense of like the organization and its mission and its goals is greater than ourselves. So we're proud that when we're gone, like I haven't been at Palantir for a decade, but I'm really proud of creating this thing and bringing in people and bringing in a culture that we're stewards for something that they were really proud of. It was being something important in the world and attracting the best and brightest and, and you know, and having a mission. And, and I think creating that 
higher sense of mission and purpose and in serving others and then being really courageous to not give in to you know as mark Andreessen calls it on twitter the current thing whatever the yeah. current thing is everyone right. really wants to give into it and go along with it and, and like there's, there's no rationality at all it's it's uh I'll give, I'll give you another system theory here. I was maybe trying to go on too long, but this is something I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, Peter Thiel always talks about Rene Girard and about, you know, this idea of the nemesis theory, right? And scapegoating theories. There's something very natural to the animal sides of our human beings where all of our desire is learned from those around us, right? A little tiny kid, your little brother, a little sister, they're going to, they're going to want what their older brother, older sister wants. That's how you learn yeah. to want. And you have, and this is natural. All of society works this way. We're certain cities. Everyone in LA starts to want what everyone else wants. They all want to be around the actors and actresses and movies and that city's about that. Whereas in DC, it's more about the political power and the White House and the senators. Whereas like, you know, the different cities have different things they're into. And, uh, and, and, and this is, it's, it's kind of how we work. And, and, just, and all of us have to have this rational part of our mind. It's a contemplative part of our mind that steps back and makes us not be animals. That's how you learn to be an adult, right? And so you still have these like animal things driving you, whether it's with food or sex or, or other desires like these we're talking about, but, but you're, but you kind of, you're contemplative, you're careful, you set your life up in a responsible way. And I think there's something about social media and something about kind of like all the technology and all that content that hits us all the time. And all this like kind of like fast dopamine response that really kind of disrupts our contemplative parts of our minds and, mm. and, our, and our kind of long-term like planning and like makes us go more back to this like animalistic side and desire driven side it does it to all of us right because it's like we're all just interrupted much more these days and it's something we're not it's not natural the state of like these electronics and these and these things like triggering our dopamine receptors almost like drugs do it's almost like we're all on some form of drugs when we're yeah. tied to these social media platforms and these other things and and, and and therefore it makes us act more like the animals who are who are who have these so you have to kind of go back to what are the natural drives when you disrupt contemplation and you get this like really crazy Girardian scapegoating mimetic thing is part of our kind of dangerous nature. And so you see that being triggered in society much more aggressively, much more, people are acting much more like animals in terms of like, like going, you know, in terms of our like ancient selves of like, you know, and we're much more eager to scapegoat than we were 10 or 20 years ago. Cause that's part of our instincts when we don't think carefully. So I just, it's just, we have to all be really careful. Like how much am I reacting to my animal instincts here for scapegoating for anything else versus like, I think hard about this. Who do I want to be as a human being, you know, longer term? Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about how you decided who you wanted to be as a human being and what's important to you, who or what have been your biggest intellectual influences, books, thinkers, however you want to take that one? Yeah, you know, I mean, as a kid, I always used to joke that Harry Seldon was a really big influence. That was the, that was the character in Isaac Asimov who uh, who's to create psychohistory and he studied the future of the next few thousand years of history and he, and he figured out what he could do to kind of make it so there wasn't a long dark age and to like kind of mm. fix the course of civilization. So I think that's, that's like a pretty good lofty goal is if you can like, I mean, obviously there's no such thing as psychohistory, but if you could influence the course of civilization in a positive way, I think that'd be really inspiring. And, you know, so I, I guess I re read a lot of historians who I really like. One of my favorite scholars is Philip Bobbitt who studied the last thousand years of history and he's probably one of the constitutional scholars the shield of achilles uh he kind of goes over and kind of maps out how forms of government are influenced by forms of warfare hmm. so if you kind of if you kind of look this is one of my favorite ways of you know just understanding these things is, is like what's what's actually driving the way things are set up and you know it used to be that one knight could take on 100 peasants and so you, you had to have knights to fight in europe 
in, in feudal society was the best way to have more knights because everything became feudal, right? It was, wasn't that people decided they wanted to have kings and lords and all that stuff. It's like that was like the structure that was the most optimal for that culture and that set of technology. And similarly, you know, when Napoleon, you know, had the Rass Rifleman charge and he won, everyone else had to do the same thing. The, the Prussians in particular couldn't keep their aristocratic societies anymore. They had to actually give more rights to people to get them to fight back. Probably a good thing overall, right? Mm -hmm. and give more rights to these people. So, 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 I, so I really like thinking about like how these systems work and how these like tweaks in the systems change things. And uh, especially because I'm very involved in technology, there's ways in which I'm personally involved in helping create the new technologies. For example, the top EMP system in the world is Epirus now. We just won another huge contest this week. It's a defense company we started that basically, you know, is able to turn off electronics within several miles. So it turns off cars and trucks and tanks and drones attacking you. And it actually shifts warfare in a very pro-defensive way. I wish I could put these into Ukraine right now. We could turn off a bunch of those convoys. We're not allowed to do that right now. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, but, but so, so, so I just think about it for different influences. Like I've always just been really interested in like how civilization works and why and what are, what, how do systems work and why and what are the boundaries? I guess, I guess I say the other really biggest influence for me, which is a book called, uh, London Magazine, which was published every every month, I guess, back uh, in like the 1730s to the 1780s. And I used to read all the primary sources. I have them all at my house. And it's really cool because the American founders and the British people would all kind of write in and argue back and forth. It's one of the greatest primary sources of our civilization. And I think the re and it also would have like all sorts of like acts of parliament in it and like math problems and maps of new places being explored and like stories of the time. Mm -hmm. I, think, I, think it's, I think one of the reasons we're not told to read it in school anymore is because everyone back then was really principles driven and they're all some form of libertarian. So for us to like empathize with liberty, it's like this greatest source. But I think like the teachers would be really annoyed to, to, like, to have to teach things where everyone's libertarian because they're not <laughs> these days. But I, I definitely recommend it if you haven't checked that out. So there's, there's things like that that have been big influences on, on me. Yeah, this is a, a fascinating question, how the tools we make in turn shape us. And one of these tools is artificial intelligence. According to some, we've entered an age of artificial intelligence. Some people welcome this new age, others are mortified. How do you think about artificial intelligence? Is, is it a replacement for human beings? Will it change what it means to be human? How are you thinking about this? Sure, I think, I think there's a lot of, frankly, pretty sloppy thinking about this. I think we gotta be really careful. Um, the extreme form of artificial intelligence, which is what some people call a singularity, is if artificial intelligence gets to be as smart as us and then can build on itself, and then it could build itself faster and faster because it keeps getting smarter. And then eventually it gets way above us and it, you know, it basically replaces us. And it's actually very funny. It's kind of like in our secular world of technology world, it's kind of a version of the Messiah, right? It's this mm. version of like of religion. And, and it's, and so, 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 and I really do think that that's the right way to think about that version of the AI conversation is this is a religion for secular people. And it's like a, it's like a, it's a form of, it's form of, you know, how the world <laughs> eventually ends and whatever it's the same thing as the oven judaism christianity and all these other things and uh i think that's fine as like an interesting societal thing to study it doesn't actually mean anything to us right now we should really separate that part of the conversation which is a religious question from like what is ai right now today and what is it actually doing and today ai is much more just advanced machine learning and advanced machine learning is really good at taking data and figuring things out using that data so like one of the things we were talking about earlier was how social media could like disrupt how our mind works. And AI is really good at taking all the inputs and like seeing and hacking and trying things and seeing what works to best get you addicted to things and best kind of hack your brain and get you coming back. And basically what the machine learning has enabled 
Facebook and Twitter and especially TikTok and others to do is to create a form. It's like a form of heroin, basically, or a form of mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a form of very advanced drug that kind of hacks your brain and keeps it addicted and keeps it coming back to these things. And so we have like this crazy experiment in society where billions of people are all taking you know, a new form of heroin all together at once and seeing how they act, which is basically what it is. Thanks to this, like, you know, thanks to this machine learning. And so I think, I think it's probably pretty dangerous and bad. And, and yet I, I, I still, you know, I've turned off most of these things. I still have Twitter. Maybe I should turn that off too. It's a, uh, it's, it's, my excuse is that it, like keeps me in the flow of the public square and seeing what's happening. And I'm actually so amused by Elon Musk's, uh, my friend there and by Mark Andreessen and others lately that I can't, I can't help myself. I have to go see what they're doing. But, uh, but, but I mean, a, a machine learning definitely is, doing new weird things there. And, and then listen, I, 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 I gave you like the kind of dangerous side. Machine learning is also helping us figure out uh, way better ways to coordinate and run a bunch of industries. And it's creating a lot of value for logistics, for healthcare, for, for all sorts of finance, for all sorts of other industries. And so I, I think there's like usually positive parts of machine learning that are creating wealth. And, and, you know, if we could actually fix healthcare to not be totally captured in crony, we'd actually make healthcare way cheaper using it as well. Cause there's all these things you can figure out if you actually got the data together and you can save a lot more lives. And, and we are, by the way, using machine learning and all sorts of cancer research and like things to understand how cells work. So there's, there, there's, there's, I, I should be careful because we're, you know, to, the overall picture is extremely positive with machine learning, but there are these parts of it. We can say what's wrong with it. Those parts of it that are being used as a drug as well, which we need to be careful about. Yeah. If you're a talented software engineer, say at Stanford, your alma mater or MIT or here at Princeton, you can either graduate and go work for a multi-billion dollar tech company where you can wear a sweatshirt to work, make great money, and get free snacks in the kitchen. Or you can go work in the windowless basement of the Pentagon on a plastic desk with a stained carpeted floor and a salary that makes an Uber ride seem like a luxury. So how do we get our nation's top tech talent to work in, or at least with, the U.S. government? Sure. And I think, I think the best thing to do for any really smart, competent engineer, I think you want to think of yourself, your time is your, is your value, right? Your resource, you're investing. So you think of yourself as a venture capitalist, like what is the best risk reward place to put your time? Just like what's the best risk reward place to put your money. And I think by far the best way to do that is like some kind of like early to mid stage high growth company that's still growing really fast, solving hard problems and has people you're going to learn from. Uh, and problems you'll learn from, as well as your parts of them growing and getting upside, right? So I think I think that's like for sure what anyone smart should be doing. And so the question then becomes, how do you do that in a way that helps our government, helps the DoD, if that's something you're passionate about? And you know, there's really only a handful of companies that are doing things in, in the DoD to solve these problems that are really good. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's places like Andrel, which Palmer Lucky started with some of my founder guys. This you know, valued somewhere around eight billion dollars now, absolutely crushing it. Um, there's, there's companies like Epirus, which just won this big contest, the top EMP in the world is hiring super smart people. A bunch of people you can learn from there. It's places like, like Palantir, places like SpaceX. Like there's there's only a small number of these companies. I mean, there's, there's other ones too that are doing really cool things in the DOD that are quite good. Companies like Rebellion is an example. That's kind of a cool named one. Um, and uh, so, so, but but that, that's what I would do if I was really talented looking to join and learn about these things. The other thing you could do is you could try to go in, if you're like a really strong personality, you could try to go in two different parts of the, the DOD itself and, and, and try to work on it. What I've found is that right now, the way the culture that works there tends to reject really smart, strong people because you'll be like, this is stupid. This is wasting six months of my time and I don't want to do this. And I need you to be able to use this library and you're wrong and I can't use it. And here's why 
And like a really good person might be able to go there and like write to the senior people and like fight their way through the bureaucratic morass with like a machete and like hack away, <laughs> but you know, you get like rules away uh, to try to like actually make a difference. But unless you're like really strong-willed and like kind of in the mood for some pain, maybe not the best way to start your career. <laughs> you know, it's probably, yeah. probably good to go somewhere with other smart people where you actually can, can harness it. And I think, I think, I think that we need some more leadership in the DOD to create, you know, frankly, we can probably get rid of half the jobs in the DOD right mm. now. It's a whole other conversation. They don't like when I say that, but there's just a lot of make work and a lot of, a lot of stuff that's just crony. And we could probably, while getting rid of half of those jobs, we could probably like take some money and create some new divisions that actually do build top tech cultures and, you know, one of the things I, I really wish we had a good technologist in the procurement part of the DOD. It's just, hmm. it's just not that many of them. So, but, but yeah, so there's a, but yeah, if you're a smart young person and work at a high growth company, if you will care about the stuff going on in the DOD, go to like a really cool new up and coming high growth thing, working with the DOD, like that's the way to impact it. In the trailer for the second season of your podcast, American Optimist, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to that trailer and to the podcast. The trailer is a lot of fun. The show is great. Yeah, everyone will enjoy that. But in this trailer, you list a few goals, or as you put it, quests you'd like to take on. And among these, heal America's divisions. The pessimist says, we're too divided to even agree how many genders there are, let alone dream about reconciliation. How does the American optimist respond? How do we heal these divisions? Yeah, you know, I, that was the first episode of that season was with my friend Daniel Lebetsky. He's a he's a he's a moderate guy. He his father actually, as he talks about, was uh, was in a concentration camp in, in the Holocaust, which mm-hmm. really shaped his life. And he has some really really t- strong stories about that that you know are really interesting. And and he ended up doing all sorts of things globally for peace and et cetera. But he's a really smart guy, and he ended up creating the snack bar thing as part of what he was doing and he's actually focused on that and he made like a multi-billion dollar snack bar company created kind bars mm. and uh and, but but he but so it's kind of it's nice to see good people like that who like just you know find a way to actually be successful commercially as well like he's just a really good guy who cares about these issues and he he has a lot of good ideas about about the values and practices we need to bring people together i i am guilty of sometimes being just so frustrated with the far left and with uh, what I see is this like corrupt attack on our core, on our values. that's just going to like take down our society that I, that I'm frustrated with the far right sometimes too, but I guess I'm more scared of the far left because they've taken over all these institutions. They've, they've attacked people close to me unfairly using the powers institutions. And they justify because I think everything's about a power struggle. And so, so, so I, I, I'm probably not as good as I could be at bringing everyone together. <laughs> I'm totally honest. That's something I need to I need to work on the wisdom there. I, I would defer to guys like Daniel and others. But I, you know, I, I as much as as much as we can as much as we can align around the fact that we're all we're in a pluralistic society. It's okay if people disagree, but we're we're all but we're all trying to work in positive some ways. And as much as we could do that, I think I think I think I have gotten you know a lot of moderate people to be fully aligned with a lot of the policies I'm working on because they lift up lives of, of, of everyone, whether it's in criminal justice or whether it's in vocational schools. And so I, 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 I guess, I guess if I think about this a little more as I'm talking, I think a lot of what Cicero Institute does, my, my, my policy group is we have a lot of just very bipartisan or nonpartisan, uh, you know, policies that really focus on how you help the most people. And so I, I think, I think, I think maybe some of those where they're just common sense that helps everyone or hopefully ways we can align with everyone, you know, because I think that's the kind of stuff you can focus on where we can bring people together. Thinking about the far left though, for a second, it, I mean, it seems like just about all of America's largest, most profitable corporations have gone woke, right? Offering pernicious- well, they're, they're responding to their incentives. This is the system, you know, right? Got it. Like they're, they're, they believe their incentive. 
especially as an employee at one of these places, is you're going to get canceled and you're going to lose your job if you're not if you're not on that side. And so they're and they, so you know yeah so they've hired people in marketing departments and like the media and all these institutions have been conquered and they're like if they stand up to it they're they're violating some kind of natural cultural norm and and they're and they're exposing themselves to be in trouble and they'd be fired this is what happens under universities they, they don't hire certain people or they fire them if they don't signal this way and it's the same way in these places like this is a this is a this is a thing where these these people in charge purposely like try to keep you out of things if you're if you're not going along with them and they, and they, they it just hurts it just hurts you professionally if you can't now I'm, I'm i'm at the point where they can't really take me down professionally they can take me off lists they can disinvite me to things i'm still like just succeeding massively because i've created so many big companies they can't really stop me very easily but but it's like for for someone coming up for a person who's working in a, a, a hierarchy and a big corporation your whole life livelihood is like all this work you've put into climbing this like corporate ladder why would you risk it by not just doing the virtue signaling you're told you're supposed to do you know yeah when you're trying to decide whether to invest in a company or an organization or a person, what are some things you look for? There's different types of investments. Or we have a very big firm at this point, and you know we're looking for we're looking for courage and talent. But I'm not looking for people who agree with me politically. I, I don't think that's appropriate, and I don't think that's actually necessarily helpful. And I, I've had some of the smartest people I've worked with uh, who who are a different sides of these things. Like I'm probably not gonna back someone who's like a straight out Marxist. That's just probably not necessary and that means it's kind of inconsistent with the with the work they're doing for, for the types of things i'm trying to work on like i want them to believe that my fund is a positive thing not like a negative thing in the world if we're going to be partnering <laughs> together but but a lot of people i work with are are, are different types of democrats a lot of different republicans in texas now there's people who are way to the right of me who i work with i'm totally honest especially socially um but uh, i think that's fine i think i think it's healthy i think i actually want to have a society where we're as pluralistic and we have all these things we disagree uh, but in, in terms of like the things we care about, for, I mean, there's a whole list of things. So we have, we, there, there's, there's really two very high level things in venture capital. One is backing the very, very best talent. And, you know, and, and there's always things around that. And then two is backing things that are possible now that were not possible five years ago. Uh, they're in capture platforms and fixed processes in our economy. And around talent, there's all these things around culture. Again, like the values like stewardship, the values like the people have to be working really, really hard. That's really good at bringing in other top talent. Uh, you have to have, you know, the right, the right abilities for the things they're working on. You, you, the hardest culture to do is to build a good tech culture. You've got a bunch of business guys like, Joe, you need to hire engineers. It's a great idea. You never get multi-billion dollar companies from guys who are great business guys trying to hire engineers. You have to have like a co-founders who are engineers who are tracking other best engineers. That's just mm. the way it works. Mm. So that's at least everything I've ever seen. Um, which is which is just unfortunate. It's just it's just, it's just it's how you have to do. It. You have to partner with co-founders who are engineers, and they have to be great. And they have to other great people want to work with them. And then there's just and then the second hardest thing about technology culture is actually design culture. So I think it's very important. These things get build really strong design cultures as well. It actually makes the company way cooler, way more thoughtful about a lot of things for users and for and it makes it place people more likely want to work because it's like you know it's done really well. So there's all the talent stuff. And then, and then, you know, when we say what's possible now that wasn't possible five years ago, just to give you an example of that, to think about it, like you couldn't, you couldn't invest in Uber or DD or Lyft before the smartphone existed because you couldn't, it doesn't make sense. You can't use them. Yeah. You can't invest in those things now as a venture capital investor either. You're not going to have hundred X because it's been possible for 15 years. Right. And so it's like, so there's not like a, it's not like a new idea. So the question has to be like, like what's the new stuff is possible. So we spent actually yesterday at my firm, we spent a lot of the time going over our six main thesis areas some of these, these super bright young guys I work with 
and uh, and really kind of mapping out like like what are the new things we're seeing in each of these in logistics and as part of healthcare, like what's working, what's making money, and why, what's adding value to society, and why. And so we really try to go deep on those. And when we back someone, we want to, we wanted them to be working in an area that we think these new things are possible. And we think they're thoughtful about it. Thinking about bright young men and women, what advice do you have? Uh, and you can answer it this way: You go back in time to 18, 19, 20 year old Joe Lonsdale. What would you tell him to do more of or less of? You know, you you got to really focus on an area that you're really passionate about, where you're going to add value. Um, you know, my, my advice is probably to like an entrepreneurial person, right? If you're not entrepreneurial, there's all sorts of other things you could do, and you can go support entrepreneurs, you can go support big companies. Everyone has different skills, right? So, so I, but I'm thinking for myself, I'm thinking like entrepreneurial person um, who wants to be part of the innovation ecosystem, and if that's what you're looking to do. Like, you know, find, find your courage and be bold. Like, don't, don't, don't ever do things to be safe. Cause you know, you're not going to, in our society, you're not going to starve, right? You're going to be fine. It's like, oh, I'm taking a big risk. You're not really taking a big risk. You're just like, you just like need not to be, just don't be a wuss, you know, you're not taking a big risk. So, so just like, you know, could go, go out and do this, be bold and do what you want to do. And then, and then like, but really focus on something you can add a lot of value to and really make sure it's something you love. Cause if you don't love something, you can't spend 80 hours a week thinking about it, focusing on it, like really going into it. And then, uh, and then, and, you know, pick an area where, and then have opinions and then, and then test your opinions. Like you should have lots of opinions. You spend lots of time on it and you should like test your opinions by talking to smart people in the industry, by trying things, by, by, you know, by writing things up and seeing what people think. And so it's like, like being opinionated in a useful area that you're interested in, where you're really good, then you're going to be able to either go work with someone really good. You're going to add value to I mean, in order to work with someone great, like I have to work with Peter Thiel. I had to have somebody's adding value to him. Peter didn't, didn't choose to work with me as a charitable thing or something like that. Like you have to like say like, what am I going to add? How am I going to add value to this? What are my skills? How am I going to build those skills? How am I going to be obsessed in the area where I have skills to go from being an A to an A plus plus? So I can add value to the best people and the most talented people in the world. And I can help them create things. So I think I think I think that's a big focus. And but but especially when you're young, like reaching out to people with opinions, with ways you think you can help, with ideas for what you're going to be doing get getting feedback on those ideas and you know not all the like you shouldn't reach out to elon musk that's stupid he's the richest man in the world from the innovative side he's not actually the richest man in the world there's like you know you know arab princes and stuff but he's actually he's the richest richest self-made man in the world and uh and he's, he doesn't have time to answer your questions he's not going to and that's stupid but if you really impress like other people and then they give you the people and you really impress those people eventually you will get to elon musk because you'll have heard from all these other you know high-ranked people around him who we trust that you're absolutely amazing you're the best this and he needs to talk to you you know so but but like whatever whatever the goal is you just have to really really focus ruthlessly and you have to work really really hard there's no such thing as like work-life balance for entrepreneurs like you mm. actually it's like it's like saying i want to train for a gold medal in the olympics but i'm going to take it easy on the weekends and have a relationship <laughs> with me no, no you're not going to get a gold medal olympics then you know it's like it's, 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 the same, it's the same thing for this yeah. Well, Joe, I promised your staff I would get you out of here in a timely manner. I can't thank you enough for all the great work you're doing and for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thanks, Nino. Great to chat with you. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. The great Joe Lonsdale on entrepreneurship, education, leadership, and so much more. I put a few links in the show notes that are worth a visit including links to Joe's personal website, where you can read a little bit about him, his work, and read some of what he's written, as well as links to his op-ed about the University of Austin and to his podcast. Again, it's all good stuff. That's all we have time for today. Please be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. 
and be sure to join us next time here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>